we talked about the Four Noble Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Paths, and the eighth of which is Right Concentration. Right Concentration is described as the Four Jhanas. We had the this beginning of the description of the first jhana, secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states. This is basically the abandoning of the hindrances. The five states that are described that hinder progress on the spiritual path. And so that's what we want to look at tonight. What I'll read you is from the second discourse in the long discourse. This is Samanya Parasita. We will revisit it a couple more times during the course. So, having a, so after returning from one's arm round, following one's meal, one sits down, crosses one's legs, holds one's body <coughs> and neck, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. One begins one's meditation process. Having abandoned covetousness for the world, one dwells with a mind free from covetousness. One purifies one's mind from covetousness. So the first hindrance is given here as covetousness. In other suttas, it's given as the desire for sensual gratification or the desire for sensual pleasure. The Buddha gives a simile. Suppose a man were to take a loan and apply it to his business, and his business were to succeed, so that he could pay back his old debts and would have enough money left over to maintain a family. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So what the Buddha is saying is that since desire is like being in debt. No sense pleasure is ultimately satisfied. Uh, if you had the most delicious ice cream in the world, when you finished eating it, you probably would never think, oh, I never need ice cream again. Uh, if you saw a magnificent sunset, it's not like you go, oh, I don't have to watch sunsets anymore. It's like, I'm coming back tomorrow night and see what they got. Right? So no sense pleasure is ultimately satisfying. They just lead to wanting another sense pleasure. And it's the same if you take out a loan. Uh, you can't call up the bank and say, well, look, I want to go on a meditation retreat this month, so can we just, like, skip the payment? <laughs> no. You've got to continually work to uh, pay back the debt. And it's the same with your senses. You have to continually work to pay off the debt. <laughs> if you do manage to pay off a loan, yeah, that's good. You feel happy about that. If you can overcome sensual desire, even temporarily, and that's all you're going to get to get pretty far down the path. Uh, yeah, it's very helpful for your practice. You no longer get it distracted into wanting. Buddha also compared sensual desire to a bowl of water that has many colored dyes poured into it. 
And if you try and look into it and see your reflection or see the bottom of the bowl, yeah, you can. Uh, sense pleasures are distracting. They get in the way of seeing what's really going on. In the new sub-commentary, okay, so we have the sutras, and then we have the commentary to the sutras, which were written, yeah, many centuries later. And then we have the commentary to the commentary, that's the sub-commentary. And then we have the commentary to the commentary, that's the new sub-commentary. In there, there are six things to be developed for the abandoning of sensual desire. These are learning the sign of the unattractive, that is, the repulsive nature of the body, application to meditation on the unattractive, guarding the doors of the sense faculties, moderation in eating, noble friends and noble conversation. Maybe not exactly the list you were hoping for. <laughs> right. Learning the sign of the unattractive, that is, the repulsive nature of the body and application to meditation on the unattractive. At the time of the Buddha, if you had a lot of sensual desire, as an antidote, they would send you to the charnel grounds to meditate. Now, a charnel grounds not like a cemetery. A cemetery is actually a very pleasant place. You know, they cut the grass, you know, little statues. Peaceful. Charnel grounds where they dump the bodies of people who can't afford a cremation. Cremation is expensive, and most people couldn't afford it. So, yeah, you just dump the bodies. And they rot. And they smell. And they get eaten by animals. And so, you're to go to the cemetery, to the charnel grounds, and sit down in front of a rotting body and contemplate the fact that, yeah, the person you have sensual desire for, yep, they're going to look like this. You're going to look like this. I suppose it worked. I mean, they kept doing it. Uh, I think in this culture, perhaps, maybe getting a realistic view of the body might be much more useful. The culture that we're in does not promote a realistic view of the body for anybody. Okay, so getting a realistic view uh, certainly would be helpful. The fact that bodies grow old, and let's face it, uglier, and then they get sick, and then they die. So that can be something to think about when you're getting old. Guarding the doors of the sense faculties. Guarding the sense faculties doesn't mean that you don't look, you don't hear. It means that when you get sensory input, when you see something, you identify what it is, that's it. You just don't take it any further. You don't get lost in it. It says, one guards the doors of the sense faculties so that one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states overcome one. Right? So, to take an example, you're walking down the street, <coughs> just going wherever you're going, and you happen to glance in the shop window, and they've got those. On sale, <laughs> in the color, right? If you're 
since faculty of sight is not guarded, you grasp at the sign. It's one of those. <laughs> They're so cool. You know, they've got the... All right, now you're lost. And then you're in the store. And your credit card debt is even worse. But if you're guarding the sense faculties, you're walking down the street, you see they have those, and then you just keep going. That's it. Uh, you're walking down the street and you pass a bakery. You notice the bakeries always have the doors open, right? That's where the smell comes from. So they can grab you by the nose and drag you in. If you're guarding the doors of your sense faculties, you're walking down the street, you see the sign for the bakery. As you get close, you exhale, and then you inhale, and you enjoy the smell, and you just keep walking. This is guarding the doors of the sense faculties. Next one is moderation and eating. On a retreat like this, yeah, it's not the only entertainment you got is eating. <laughs> right? <coughs> There's a real tendency, especially as good as the food is here, to uh, perhaps go a little overboard with that. If you really focus on the food, when you come to meditate, <coughs> you'll be stuck focused on the food. Yeah, and that's going to be a distraction. So, one way to counteract that is just, yeah, moderation and eating. I made a rule when I'm on retreat, I can have all the food I want, it'll fit on the plate. <laughs> okay, no seconds, all right? Now I do make exceptions. Uh, that corn, yeah, that would have been an exception, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, just moderation and eating. And then noble friends and noble conversations, which I'm going to defer talking about. Wish I had better antidotes to give you. Uh, I say this most sincerely. On that first retreat with Ayutthaya, she gave a talk on the five hindrances, and she started out by saying, pay attention. You'll probably find one of these hindrances is your hindrance, the one that gets you the most. Yep, that was sensual desire, right? That's the one I get caught in. So when I say I wish I had something better to tell you, it's because I wish I had something better <laughs> for me. The one thing that I can say that is helpful when you see something desirable, see that it's desirable, but also see its limitations. Right? Nothing is perfect. Uh, Mr. and Miss Wright got married a long time ago, and they're not interested in you. It's just, you know, it's just people out there. They all have their flaws and whatever. It's just things that break and wear out. It's just artwork you've got to ensure. It's just clothes that go out of style. It's, right? So, if you see something desirable, you know, it's desirable, but also see the limitations. See that it's less than perfect. This less than perfect mantra has been very helpful for me. It's very easy to get taught and then to remind myself it's less than perfect. Sort of 
unhooks my hand here. The second hindrance. Having abandoned ill will and hatred, one dwells with a benevolent mind, sympathetic for the welfare of all living beings. One purifies one's mind from ill will and hatred. So the first hindrance is the wanting mind, and the second hindrance is the not wanting mind. So attraction and aversion. We have a simile. Suppose a man were to become sick, afflicted, gravely ill, so that he could not enjoy his food and his strength would decline. After some time he would recover from that illness and would enjoy his food again and regain his bodily strength. He would reflect on this and as a result he would become glad and experience joy. So if you're ill, you don't feel well, you're hot, you can't think straight, and you can't do what you want to do. If you're overcome with ill will and hatred, you don't feel well, you're hot, you can't think straight, and you can't do what you want to do. They don't call it ill will for nothing. Right? But if somebody were to take medicine and overcome an illness, they would rejoice. If you can set aside your aversion, your ill will and hatred, or anger, or ever how it's manifested, yeah, this is a positive thing for your practice. Now, the phrase sensual desire and ill will and hatred is sort of the extremes. But really the hindrance, the first hindrance is wanting in all of its forms. And the second one is aversion in all of its forms. We not get to the stage of ill will and hatred, uh, but if it's aversion, that's it's covered under this. Uh, the Buddha also compared ill will and hatred to a bowl of water that's sitting over a fire and boiling. Again, you can't look into the depths, you can't see your reflection. He also talked about ill will and hatred as being like picking up hot coals and throwing them at someone. Now who's guaranteed to get burned? If the other person has any sense at all, they just jump out of the way rather than try and catch the hot coals and throw them back. If somebody is angry at you, it's not a requirement you get angry back at them. Of course, if you don't get angry back at them, that may make them even more angry, but that's their problem, not yours. There's a story in the suttas where this Brahmin comes to see the Buddha, and he's very upset. You see, his younger brother had come to see the Buddha a few days before, and, well, the Buddha had corrupted his younger brother, and his younger brother had become a monk. So the Buddha, the monk is the Brahmin is given the Buddha what form, going on and on and on. Finally, he pauses for breath, and the Buddha says, Excuse me, do you ever give a feast? Certainly I give a feast. You provide nice food for the feast? Of course I provide nice food for the feast. Suppose you were to give a feast and prepare nice food, but nobody came. To whom would the food belong? Belong to me. Yes, so, Brahman, I'm not coming to your feast. <laughs> The Brahman was so impressed, he too became a monk. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to 
engage at the same level if you encounter somebody who's upset. And luckily, there are six things to be developed for abandoning ill will and hatred. First is learning the sign of loving kindness, and then an application to meditation on loving kindness. Reflection on the ownership of action, abundance of wise reflection, noble friends and noble conversation. Learning the sign of loving kindness, learning what love feels like. Metta is usually translated as loving kindness. Sometimes you see loving friendliness or something like that. Really, it's about unconditional love. So learn what love feels like. Know what love is. And then application to meditation on loving kindness. So if you are meditating away, following your breath, whatever, and aversion arises, first thing is just set it aside, let it go. And if it comes back, you can just let it go. But if it's persistent and it just won't go away, then the thing to do is stop whatever practice you were doing before and switch to doing metta meditation. You don't have to do it for the person you're angry at. Probably asking a bit too much, but do it for somebody. Do it for yourself. Do it for your dog, for your best friend. Do it for the Dalai Lama. You know, find somebody you can do some metaphor and do metaphor. You know, two, three, five minutes and get yourself calmed down, and then you can go back to following your breathing if that's what you were doing or whatever. Or you can just continue doing metta for the rest of the day. Kind of a lot nicer than staring at rotting corpses. Metta is a really powerful practice. If they were to come to me and say, you can only do one practice, pick. Yeah, pick metta. It's it's really good. It's got a lot of uses. It it really sets you up in a very powerful place. Give you a story. So, 1975, I got divorced. It was an unpleasant experience. You see, she... There was definite aversion on my part, right? And uh, ten years later, I go on my first retreat. And I came and does guided metta like I'm doing in the evening. And she gets to the difficult people. Actually, she says, think of your enemy. Well, I knew who my enemy was. Anybody that would. Uh, and I got to give her some love? Okay. Yeah, well, okay. Right. I got that over with. Except the next day I had to do it again. Right? And the next day. And the next day. For 10 days. And then I came and said, start each of your meditation periods with metta. And so. Basically, I did the same sort of guided visualization that Aya had been guiding. And uh, I get to my ex-wife, and it was like, a little. And I did this for five years. 
And during that time, my attitudes towards her went from, I hate your guts, to, gee, I wish you hadn't done that. And then I got a letter from her. And in the letter, she apologized and asked for my forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to claim sending her meta made her write the letter. I had no idea why she wrote the letter. But the next day, when I got to the visible person, it wasn't her. She arrived in the neutral category. Just doing meta for that length of time set me up at a place so that when I got the letter, she was no more a problem, and she's stayed neutral ever since. So yeah, it's a very powerful practice. The third one is reflection on the ownership of action. Have you ever done anything when you were angry that wasn't maybe the wisest thing to do? Yeah, and you can't really call up the karma gods and say, well, you know, let's, let's just let this go because I was, I was upset at that time. Karma gods don't answer the phone. Once you're in a negative, aversive state full of ill will and hatred or anger or something like that, you've actually put yourself in a position that's not very powerful in that it's quite possible you may act in a way that's detrimental to yourself. And you're going to have to deal with the results of that action. Abundance of wise reflection. Ill will and hatred do not feel pleasant. Being angry does not feel pleasant. Pay attention to what it's like. Pay attention to what it does to us. And then noble friends and noble conversations, which I will again defer. The third hindrance. Having abandoned dullness and drowsiness, one dwells perceiving light, mindful and clearly comprehending. One purifies one's mind from dullness and drowsiness. Usually translated as sloth and torpor. Uh, I've seen it as laziness and lassitude. Uh, basically, it's not having enough energy. The not enough energy can be physical, in which case there's a tendency to fall asleep. Or it can be, sorry, it can be mental, in which case it's a fall asleep. Or it can be physical, physical fall asleep, or mental and just laziness. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to go meditate again. I don't really want to do that. I, I, I have this book. He doesn't know I have the book. I'm going to get the book. <laughs> right? <laughs> so physically, you're sleepy. Mentally, you're lazy. And it's just not enough energy there. And sometimes you sit down and, yeah, you're not falling asleep, but, you know, following your breath is just so boring and you just got this fantasy and you're not, you're just going to run the fantasy for a few minutes, and, <laughs> right? Yeah, it doesn't work. Simile. Suppose a man were locked up in a prison. After some time, he would be released from prison, safe and secure, with no loss of his possessions. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So, sloth and torpor is like being in prison. If you're in prison, you just sit there, missing out on all the good things of life. If you have sloth and torpor, 
You just sit there missing out on all the good things of the spiritual life. But if you release from prison, if you overcome sloth and torpor, yeah, you rejoice and become glad. Buddha compared sloth and torpor to a bowl of water that's stagnant and has algae and weeds growing out of it. Again, you can't see into the depths, you can't see your reflection. But luckily, there are six things to do. Recognizing that overeating is the basis of sloth and torpor. Changing the postures, engine to the perception of light, living in the open air, noble friends and noble conversations. So recognize that overeating is the basis of sloth and torpor. There's a reason we don't have a meditation period right after we eat. I mean, you don't have to wash the dishes here. We could just say, okay, breakfast is at 8 o'clock, and uh, we'll have another meditation period at 8.30. Right? That's enough time. You know, lunch is at noon, and we'll have another meditation period at 12.45. Well, no, you just fall asleep because you're busy digesting. I've heard it said that you should eat until you're a couple of mouthfuls before being full. Now, I never quite figured out how you could tell, but uh, <laughs> definitely if you eat a bit less on retreat, it'll help keep you awake. Well, I'd say about half the people that come to their interviews complaining about being sleepy so far in this retreat, yeah, it's about the way it usually goes. If you want to deal with the sleepiness, one, get enough sleep, and two, eat less food. It takes a lot of energy to digest your food, and while you're busy digesting, you don't have energy to keep yourself awake while you're meditating. So, if you're eating less food, you're actually counteracting two of the hindrances, sensual desire and sloth and torpor. Changing the postures, attention to the perception of light, living in the open air. So these are for dealing with sleepiness. Uh, if you're feeling sleepy, you can rub your cheeks, you can pinch and pull on your earlobes. If you know where the acupressure point is on the side of your ears, you can squeeze that really hard. That'll wake you up for a little bit. Uh, open your eyes, stare at the brightest light you can see, and if all else fails, stand up. If you're standing up, staring at a light, with your eyes open, you're probably not going to see. As I mentioned earlier, make sure you flex your knees if you're doing standing meditation. Right? If you lock your knees, you have a tendency to pass out. And you can continue with the breath or the metta or the body scan while you're standing. Or you can put your attention in your feet and notice the subtle movements that are happening to keep your balance. That also is a good uh, object of meditation, for standing meditation. For the laziness, how you came to say, give yourself a pep talk. You know, one thing that might be helpful is read something inspiring just before you meditate. 
There, there are lots of little books that have little, you know, one or two page uh, excerpts from the suttas or something that some teacher says, and you might have one of those around. And yeah, just you know, read for a minute or two before you start your meditation practice. It can be inspiring so that you're actually able to really give yourself to the practice. <coughs> and noble friends and noble conversations, which again, I'm going to defer. Having abandoned restlessness and remorse, one dwells at ease within oneself with a peaceful mind. One purifies one's mind from restlessness and remorse. You usually see this translated as restlessness and worry. When I looked up the word that's translated as worry, and a better translation is remorse. Worry really falls under the second hindrance. You're worrying about the future. You have some aversion to possibility of what could unfold in the future. Uh, this is more remorse, regret about the past. Right? So you're, you're worrying about the past. Uh, and that, I think, remorse is a better way to, to translate it. But restlessness can be physical or mental. If it's physical, you just can't get comfortable. You sit down and it's not right and you move around and it's still not right and you're just sitting there twitching and trying to get settled. Or the restlessness can be mental. And you're sitting there and it's just one thing after another after another. There's no real theme to it. Your mind just simply won't settle down. One thing I noticed is that if I sit in a way that's somewhat uncomfortable, but not terribly uncomfortable, after a while it begins to get more uncomfortable and my mind gets restless, right? It's like, it's uncomfortable enough, I don't want to notice the physical. So to distract from the physical, my mind starts throwing up all sorts of things. And sometimes when the mind feels really restless, what needs to be done is just change the posture slightly. So if you're going to change your posture, you want to pay attention to the intention to move, and then you want to move very mindfully. And then you want to notice the disturbance it created and watch your mind settle back down. Okay? So, yeah. But if you find yourself moving all the time, it could be that you have physical restlessness. There's a simile. Suppose a man were a slave without independence subservient to others, unable to go where he wants. And after some time, he would be released from slavery and gain his independence. He would no longer be subservient to others, but a free man able to go where he wants. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So a slave is always busy. Busy doing what the master commands. Go there, do that. Come here, do this not doing what the slave wants to do. And it's the same with restlessness. It drives you all over the place. You can't do what you want to do, which is sit down and get quiet and concentrated and so forth. 
You know, it's like being a slave. The Buddha compared restlessness and remorse to a bowl of water with a strong wind blowing across it, making ripples. And you can't look into it and see the depths or your reflection. But luckily, there are six things to do for overcoming restlessness and remorse. These are much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, associating with senior monks, noble friends and noble conversations. Much learning. It's good to study this. You could study the early text, the suttas. You could study modern writers, but just really get a sense of what's going on here. You know, there are tons of Dharma talks out there for free on the web. Just you know, try and understand what's happening. Sometimes the restlessness is due to the fact you're just not quite sure what to do. Interrogation. Ask questions. The Buddha set great store by asking, of asking questions. People would come to him all the time and ask him questions. So, yeah. If he encouraged people to ask questions, I think we can ask questions. There's a very good book by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, I think you can probably download it off the internet, called Skill in Questions, which examines the role of questions in the Buddha's teachings. He had, I believe, four ways of answering questions. Sometimes it was a yes or a no. Sometimes he'd ask a counter-question. Sometimes he would give a Dharma talk, and sometimes he would just keep silent. Too bad that just keeping silent has gone out of style. <laughs> I think things would go a lot nicer. But yeah, ask questions. And if you come across a teacher who discourages asking questions, run. Skill in the Vinaya. The Vinaya is the rules for the monks and nuns. 227 for the monks, 313 for the nuns. But for lay people, it's just five. So basically, skill in the precepts. Right? If you are skillful with the precepts, then you won't be doing anything to be remorseful about. Right? Uh, yeah, your life is much more at ease. Associating with senior monks, Hang out with people that know what's going on with the practice and have some skill with this. That can be very helpful for you figuring out what you want to do and how you want to approach this. And noble friends and noble conversations. Again, I'm going to defer. The fifth hindrance. Having abandoned doubt, one dwells as one who has passed beyond doubt. Unperplexed about wholesome states, one purifies one's mind from doubt. This doubt is skeptical doubt. It doesn't mean that you accept whatever you're told. There's healthy doubt and there's skeptical doubt. The skeptical doubt can run well. Doubt in the Buddha was the 
really enlightened? Doubt in the Dhamma, is this really the truth? Doubt in the Sangha, can anybody else get enlightened? Doubt in the teacher, this guy's a hippie computer programmer, what is he that? Doubt in the teachings, and the most insidious doubt of all, doubt in yourself. I can't do it. It's a hard path. If this stuff was easy, we'd have all gotten enlightened a long time ago. And so there's going to be a lot of work. There's going to be a lot of setbacks, a lot of maybe not making the progress you hope to make. Okay, but just keep working with it. Just be in there and realize, yeah, this does lead you in a good direction. The Dalai Lama says that you should measure your progress on the spiritual path in five-year increments. Right? Look at how you were five years ago. What is your understanding then? How are you behaving then? How have you changed in limiting time? Similarly, Suppose a man with wealth and possessions was traveling along a desert road where food was scarce and dangers were many. After some time, he would cross over the desert and arrive safely in a village which is safe and free from danger. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So if you're on a perilous desert journey, where provisions are scarce and dangers are many. First you think to go this way, but wait, there won't be any water. Better to go this way, but no, there's sure to be bandits. There's more starting and stopping than actual progressing. This happens on the spiritual path. You start out doing <coughs> vipassana. You're in the Theravadan tradition, but it's kind of dry. You know, uh, that, you know, they got the paintings, they got the horns, it's a lot more colorful, so you switch to doing Tibetan practice. Turns out it's uh, a little too Catholic, a little too Baroque, Zen. It's got to be Zen, right? You know, I mean, they got the cool gardens, they got these great stories, so you start doing Zen practice. Turns out they hit you with a stick. Sufi <laughs> dancing, Sufi dancing, right? You're not making any progress at all. You're just going one thing to another. I've heard it said if you really want to know where a path will lead, you've got to follow it for five years. Now, this doesn't mean that if you recognize, no, this is not for me, you can't change your mind for five years. All right? But you've got to give it time. It's a slow-moving process. So the Buddha also compared skeptical doubt to a bowl of water that's full of mud. And again, you can't see into the depths, and you can't see your reflection. But there are six things to be developed for abandoning skeptical doubt. And they're very similar to the ones for restlessness and remorse. Much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, resolution, noble friends and noble conversation. So 
much learning. If you have doubts, yeah, study, see what's going on. Interrogation, ask questions. Skill in the Vinaya. The first practice that you should undertake is keeping the precepts, right? So what's it like if you keep the precepts? Does this enhance your life? This is something you can get some feedback on fairly soon. In Buddhism, the reason to keep the precepts isn't so much, and if you don't, you'll go to hell. It's, this is what works. This is how you live your life so that you're not causing conflict with other people. So try it out, see if it works. If it works, that can help give you some alleviation from the doubt. And then resolution. Resolve to follow the path far enough to see where it leads. And noble friends and noble conversations. These are obviously quite important. There are antidotes for all five of our hindrances. can't exactly do that while you're meditating, but very important. There's a sutta where Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of his life, comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, I say that noble friends and noble conversations are half the holy body. And the Buddha says, do not say so, Ananda. Noble friends and noble conversations are the entire holy life. It's really hard to do this on your own. It really helps to have people with whom you can have noble conversations about the past. These are the noble friends. When one sees that these five hindrances are unabandoned within oneself, one regards that as being in debt, as sickness, as confinement in prison, as slavery, as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and remains in the first job. Any questions? crazy right now. There's no doubt about it. And there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, it's disgusting what's happening. And yeah, it can cause you to get quite upset and so forth. 
The thing to do is to realize this is what I can do about it, or there's nothing I can do about it. And if there is something you can do about it, do it. Uh, one of the things they say about trauma is somebody's in a traumatic situation and they're able to take action. That alleviates much of the trauma. If they're in a traumatic situation and they're unable to act, then the trauma is much more, it has a much deeper effect on the person. And I think that basically we're all being traumatized now by the insanity happening in the world. So what action can you take? Uh, you have to sort of figure that out on your own and probably you don't have enough power to fix any of it but uh, maybe there's some organization that you feel is doing a good job combating some of this and you could be helpful for them joining it writing letters giving them money they said that the ACLU's membership doubled when Trump became president. Yeah, uh, people realized we, I've got to do something. So yeah, things like that. Uh, but yeah, it's really crazy out there and there's a lot of stuff. And therefore you want to take your news in digestible bites. You're going to say something else? Oh, I, you know, I have done things that could join including political groups and, and I'm doing things with them but it still is not relieving yeah. and, and it is affecting me so strongly but you know, it's even affecting my practice yeah. because anger and frustration right and yeah I don't have I don't have a good cure for that uh, somebody asked, I came on that first retreat, what about, you know, political action or anything like that? She said, well, if you know something you can do, by all means do it. And if you don't know anything you can do, let it go. Which I think is exactly the correct thing. The trick is, <laughs> it's really hard to let it go when it's just this painful. Uh, and I, I, I wish I had a really good answer for you, because I'd have it for me and everybody else. Uh, but yeah, it's a really painful time right now. Okay, so the new sub-commentary. So there's the suttas, and then there's a commentary to the suttas, which is from Sri Lanka. It, in the form that we had it, it would be from 500, this century AD, so, right? And then they wrote a commentary about the commentary, that's the sub-commentary. Ah, uh, don't remember the monk's name that it's attributed to. Uh, it would be possible to search around and find it, but, you know, not somebody I'd ever heard of, okay? And then there's a commentary to the commentary. That's the sub-commentary. That's the new commentary, new sub-commentary. So 
commentary from Buddhaghosa, sub-commentary from a monk whose name I've forgotten, and then the new sub-commentary, which is the commentary to the commentary to the commentary. Yeah. So I've heard it said that something like depression can be anger that's not acted upon. Yeah. And in my own spiritual path and healing journey, I certainly found this to be true. And, and yet, what I hear in some of these scriptures on the hindrances, especially, especially around anger, is that anger is bad in some sense. And I can see how anger in itself, holding on to something, would interfere with one's practice and one's life. So I, I can see the good in that, and yet I'm also curious about your thoughts on the place where healthy anger, protective healthy anger. Right. So the context in which the five hindrances are given is the context of trying to generate excess concentration. Right? So all of these states are not useful at that point. Just get all of that stuff out of the way. Because you could, when you're doing your labeling your distractions, you could use the five hindrances and probably cover pretty much everything that comes up. So that's the first thing. The context here is, yeah. Get the anger out of the way. It's not going to be useful at this point. You're sitting here in a room. There's nothing you can do about whatever it is. The guy that you're angry at isn't even here. He's three states over or whatever. So that's part of it. It is true that at times you have to recognize I'm angry. And suppressing it is not going to work. That's just going to give you ulcers. So what is it that's made me angry? How can I deal with this situation? So instead of just being angry and running around with your head on fire, it's more like recognizing that you're angry. And now, what are you going to do about the situation that made you angry? And I think that's the most important thing. It's not that you're going to indulge in the anger, because anger doesn't solve the problem. It's just picking up more and more hot coals. Right? So how are you going to put some water on the coals so that when you pick them up, they're not hot? And that's figuring out what is the situation here? Why am I angry? And what can I do about it? Now, what the major problem is, sometimes it's really not very obvious what you can do about it. In particular, with the insanity coming out of Washington, D.C., yeah, it's anger-producing that it's this stupid. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Ah, but if you can channel that energy into supporting some other candidates, supporting some organization that's helping those who are being harmed, going on protest march, whatever. But that's the only thing that's going to be useful. The indulging the anger doesn't solve the problem. Uh, so in the context of trying to generate access concentration, it's, yeah, set the anger aside for now. It's not an appropriate time to, to deal with it. 
in the context of, okay, now it's time to deal with the anger. It's about finding what is the situation is, getting a real understanding of the situation that's making you angry, and then figuring out what you can do to address that situation. And that last step can be quite difficult at times. But that's what, that's the best advice I can give. My teacher, Guagu, says that um, people like politicians or difficult people are great bodhisattvas. You know, they're here to help us along our spiritual path. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I use the word bodhisattva. No. <laughs> they're certainly that, teachers. He uses that, that term just because um, you know, now's the time. To, you know, it's easy to be an old man on a hill. Right. Um, and you have to cut down and deal with difficult people. These are the people you met. It really becomes a not so much for them, but for for me, you know, a practice yeah. of you know, or just love and tolerance is one of the things I use a lot. Sometimes. Right. And it just so it gets rid of the anger. Um, um, <clears throat> and then you know, there's other actions as well. So I, you know, it's, it's yeah. been a good practice for me, especially since I'm you know, having a lot of that self righteous anger that. Yeah, see, seeing these people as our teachers. Ayakema said our best teacher is Dukkha. And these people are, <laughs> they're generating it. So can we see them as our teachers and what can we learn from these situations? Uh, yeah. I mean, the world's a mess. I mean, there's, there's no other way to look at it. And the question is not how can I fix it, because I doubt any of us have the power to fix it. It's how am I going to deal with the fact that the world is a mess? What can I do to help alleviate some of the mess? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard situation. The very last thing you said about Overcoming the five hindrances is the first jhana. Is that right? No. Overcoming the five hindrances is access concentration, which leads to the first oh, jhana. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when one sees that these five hindrances are abandoned, this leads to the Pali word is pamoja, which is often translated as gladness or uh, worldly joy. And when I tell you, focus on the pleasant sensation, the focus on the pleasant sensation is pamoja. So <clears throat> the method of abandoning the hindrances that we're using here is generating access concentration. Right? Whatever distraction comes up, probably one of the hindrances, Label, relax, come back, and keep doing that until you're back. So when you're not getting distracted, you're not under the sway of the hindrances. Then find some pamoja, and the best to look for is a pleasant physical sensation, or no pleasant physical one, a pleasant mental sensation. Focus on that pamoja. And then the pamoja will turn into piti and take you into the first job. Does that lay it out a little clearer? 
does, but it makes me wonder what we're doing here. It sounds like a shortcut. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To show us what it can be. The, the, the trick is also a shortcut, which is, yeah, switching your attention to something pleasant. But it won't work unless you've got the hindrances under control. Because if you don't have the hindrances under control, then when you switch to the pleasant sensation, you'll lose it, you'll get distracted because you don't have enough concentration. So by generating access concentration, you've temporarily suppressed the hindrances. And now to really take advantage of the suppression of the hindrances, to manifest the Pamoja, focus on something pleasant. And then it'll, it'll transform itself into PT if you don't get distracted. Don't try and help it and don't talk about it and all that other stuff. Other questions or comments? Okay, we'll take a short break and then do that. Question.